Amen. If you have uh, kids that you want to send on to Children's Church, you can go ahead and send them this way. You're welcome to keep them with you uh, during service today. But uh, if, if you know your kids like my kids, this might be the best thing. I don't know. You guys did a great job today. I love that. Um, we sat and talked to the staff, kind of process, and having the kids up here. It was not just we want to showcase what the kids are kind of doing over there, but we also felt like, like we said, kids, kids can lead too. And we want them to come and lead in worship. And so uh, I don't think it's going to be the last time you're going to see something like that. And so I encourage you. Actually, I expect next time we do it, all y'all better know the hand motions and getting after it. Now, if you're like me, I cannot clap and sing at the same time. So when I'm in the situation, I have to pick one or the other because they're both not going to happen at the same time. So um, anyways, uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 1 here in just a bit. Um, you can start turning your way there. But I don't know if you guys ever had one of these. Anybody? Um, this has helped me a lot in life. So let me... Let me see. Uh, should I preach this sermon today? Um, cannot predict now. Okay, well, I really need an answer. Okay, uh, how about this? Should I go and uh, buy a, a brand new truck? Because that sounds really good, too. It is decidedly so. Oh, Emily left already. Y'all heard that, right? The, the eight ball has spoken, so I have to do this. Uh, should I take my kids to Disney World this year? Please say no. Please say no. Um, outlook good. Okay, don't tell her about that. Um, Let's see. Ooh, here's a good one. Should I, should I give everybody in here $100 of my own money right now? Should I do that? It's decidedly so. Okay, next question. Where can I find that much money? Ask again later. Okay, this is not, uh, not working so well at, at all. Um, it, it's, it's funny. Uh, we actually got this when I was in youth. We, we had some fun youth leadership team meetings and would get a stalemate. So I got this as a joke. Of like, hey, maybe this will help us decide some decisions. And you'd be shocked how many times we actually use this. Um, it raises a good question I want to ask you. Is this ever okay to make decisions for us like that? What about as a church when we sit here? Should we, should we go and, and, and start this ministry? Should we, should we uh, what about with our building? Should we add on? Should we do this? Should we, whatever these sort of things. Is it okay to use a magic eight ball? Um, says, yes, definitely. I don't know what question I just asked it. I say, the answer I want to tell you today is this. I think it's, the answer is ultimately this. Is it ever okay just to leave it to chance a little bit? I'd say no, but at the same time, yes. And we'll be in Acts chapter 1. I'll show you why here in just a minute as we look at a situation that literally came down to pretty much a flip of a coin and what would lead them to do something like that. We're starting a series, we've been in a series called Small Church, Big Mission, and talking about how often when it comes to church, we measure the church's effectiveness by what we can see, right? We look at a church and based off its building size, maybe based off its preacher, maybe based off its worship minister, youth, children, all these sort of things, we base its potential and we judge it based off those things. We do the same thing to ourselves sometimes, right? We look at ourselves and we look at myself and say, man, I am completely incapable just on what I see, what I hear from myself. But when the reality, it's, there's so much more depth than we could ever know. The things that we think we don't know, that we see, it, our depth comes from the things that we don't see, what the Lord does in and through us. 
You see, as we talk about a church and we talk about accomplishing this vision we unpacked of developing faithful followers, reaching our community, and multiplying the church, like how do we actually believe as elders, we sent talked about it, that we could actually fulfill the Great Commission and taking the gospel to the whole world through multiplying the church. It sounds grandioso, it sounds amazing, it sounds big, but the reality is, is that if we just look at what is visible, we say it's no way possible you could ever do this, but the depth that God has put in us makes it completely possible and probable. I, I believe it, because what we're reading in Acts chapter 1 and 2 is we see this church, this small group of people that are entrusted to start the church, and they do. The, the improbable that happens. And so I want to continue in this series as we kind of look at this small church, yet big mission. How do we do this? Last week, we talked about being spirit-led and story-loaded and how God has given us all the tools we need in the Holy Spirit, and he's given us a witness of what he has done to tell other people. We have a story to tell, and we sometimes undermine the power of it. I can't tell you how many people I talk to and go, yeah, my testimony is not powerful. It's not amazing. It's not as big. Listen, you've been redeemed and saved from eternity of hell. Tell me that's not powerful. I don't care what the context is, whether you were a little seventh grade kid uh, at church or whether you were a little uh, third grader that came and sang on a Sunday morning and God saved you through that. Listen, your story is powerful. It makes no difference what it is. And so it's so important that we understand that. My concern, though, is we talk about that last week, gets us excited that we need to lean on the Holy Spirit, his leading and what it does in our life. But at the same time, my concern sometimes for us is that we can get so caught up in waiting that we neglect going. You ever find situations like that? Well, I'm waiting for the Lord to speak, and he doesn't speak, he doesn't guide, he doesn't direct, and so what do we do? We sit and do nothing. The question I have to ask is this, is what do we do with those in-between phases? Where, where Scripture is not abundantly clear about what we're supposed to do, and the Spirit has not nudged or directed. What do we do in those odd situations? Where do we go? The, the Bible doesn't tell us what to do with this situation directly, uh, come out and clearly say, and Spirit has not led us to this, so would we sit on our hands and just wait for something to happen? The truth I want to unpack today that I'm hoping I can show and, and, and point out through Scripture is this, it's our big idea, is that in those moments we have to use wisdom and discernment to take initiative. And I want to unpack and show you an example from Acts chapter t- 1, verse 12 through uh, 26. Now, as we read this, I want to be clear with you something real quick. Acts is a historical letter. Luke wrote this gospel to give a historical account of how the church had started. It is not a letter to a church explaining to the church how to operate and function. In other words, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. You understand the difference. It's describing how one church did it. It doesn't mean that we have to follow in their exact footsteps, and that's exactly how everything should look. It's showing an example of what they've done and how we can maybe look and glean from that wisdom of what they do. You understand? So when we read letters like 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Romans, those are letters to churches about how to operate as a church. This is a historical letter giving us a history. We, we, we read it and we understand and say, well, what, how does this apply to us? And so we're going to break it up in little sections as we unpack. So hopefully you're there by now in Acts chapter 1. We're going to start by just reading 12 through 14. And as you know right there, this is where Jesus has just left. He tells him, says, listen, you're going to be able to accomplish all this stuff when the Spirit comes, and you're going to have a story to tell. And then he leaves, and he ascends to heaven, and the disciples are stuck just gawking at the sky like, did you see that? And suddenly two white men in white clothes come up like, hey, what are y'all staring at? Get after it. Like, yeah, he's going to come back the same way. Don't get caught up in that. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is you have a mission to go do. Don't get caught up in all this sort of things. 
And so Acts chapter 1, verse 12 is where they start taking the initiative. They start doing something. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from Mount Olives, which is near Jerusalem. It was a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually knighted in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, I love, they just saw Jesus, and they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. I have a picture of a map to give you perspective. Mount of Olives was just right outside of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it was a real short distance. It says it was about a Sabbath day journey, which would have been about two-thirds of a mile that they traveled. And so they're out at this Mount of Olives, and suddenly they make their way back into Jerusalem, into this upper room. Now, most scholars would say it's probably not the same upper room where they had the Lord's Supper with Jesus. That would maybe be a coincidence if it was. But what's interesting is they're outside of Jerusalem, and suddenly they're going back into Jerusalem. But to me, when I see this, I, I think they're probably still laying low. Understand, Jesus was just crucified for this action right here, for what he did. And even though they've seen him resurrected, imagine the fear of what happened. Imagine suddenly I'm up here preaching, and the authorities come and arrest me and take me away and say, Listen, Eric, for preaching the gospel, for standing your ground, we're going to, uh, um, we're going to give you the death sentence, and they execute me. How excited would you guys be to, to come back here next Sunday and sit thinking, man, if that happens to him, what's going to happen to me? And so you can't necessarily blame them, probably still laying low, like, listen, I know Jesus did what he did, but they're still, that, that whole crucifixion was meant to strike fear into people. It was meant to end movements. And for them to start it back up, imagine what could happen to them. And so they're hiding out, but yet Jesus says, listen, you need to start in Jerusalem. And so they head back into Jerusalem to go back in. And I love, they go there and they, what do they do? They pray. It says they're continually united in prayer. Even more so, I think it's interesting, they have other people. Jesus' mother Mary is there, and so his brothers, which we know from other gospels we've read that not too long ago, they were rejecting him. They were saying, this guy's crazy, like, he's not, something's changed. As a matter of fact, by his brothers, I can't help but infer that maybe James, Jesus' brother, who wrote the book of James, is probably in there as well. Imagine him in the room and what he's seen. Now listen, I want to tell you right now, uh, students just got back from an apologetic conference talking about proving the existence of God. How can you defend the faith? I don't know about you, but for me to have to look at my brother and call him the son of God, he would have to be the son of God for me to do that, right? I don't know what gives more proof right there. My brother's great, and I love him to death, but at the same time, I'm not going to be like, dude, yeah, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to bow down to you, you're the son of God. Something had to change there, right? But they're laying low, and they're praying. Let's keep reading, see what happens. Acts chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters, and the number of people who were together were about 120. 120. And he said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was not one of our number, uh, for he was one of our number who shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field that it, with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first, his body burst open, his intestines spilled out. It just got graphic real quick, I know. Verse 19, this became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field is called uh, the field of blood. That is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Now Peter stands up, and Peter, bless his heart, he makes a fool of himself, but at the right times he sometimes steps up and takes leadership, doesn't he? 
And he begins taking the lead and says, and he begins to try to dissect the situation with Judas. And imagine yourself, you have been chosen as one of the 12, and you're walking with Jesus for three years, seeing all this sort of stuff, and then one of your brothers who has been with you and has not shown any real signs of dissatisfaction or, or, or like he's going to stage a coup, if you will, suddenly you find out is the one who betrays Jesus, who betrays what's going on. Like, I think they're trying to make sense of the situation. Like, this, I, I, like Judas, he was my buddy. Like, what happened here? They begin trying to process what's going on in Peter, and they believe here that this is fulfilled in Scripture. This is part of what Scripture told us was going to happen. What's interesting here is some people who try to disprove the Bible will actually say you have a stark contradiction right here why, and show why Scripture is not inerrant, why there are mistakes in it. You say, why do I say that? Because it talks about how Judas died. Here it says he fell head first, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. I'm sorry for that uh, mental image. But when you look at Matthew, it tells a little bit of a different story. Matthew chapter 27, verse 5 through 8. And if you're not there, which I don't expect you to be, just listen to what it says. It says, so he, being Judas, threw the silver into the temple, departed. Then he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver and is not permitted to put in the temple treasury, he said, since it's blood money. You have a situation where Matthew talks about Judas hung himself, but yet here you have a different situation where Judas says he falls to his death, almost it seems like. Some people actually look at this and say, you see, you have a stark contradiction in Scripture. Scripture is not inerrant. It is not perfect. It makes mistakes. What's going on here? I don't want to skip over this because I don't want you to be wrestling with those thoughts. And so when I studied, and I've studied this in college and looked at it, so which is it? Is it a clear contradiction? Not necessarily. Well, one commentary said this, said, note that Luke does not say that Jude, or Luke, who wrote Acts, does not say that Jesus, Judas died from falling. It says only that his body fell. It says the Acts passage presumes Judas hanging, as a man falling down an open field does not normally result in his body bursting open. So in other words, Matthew is mentioning his actual cause of death, where Luke is focusing on all the horrors surrounding the death. Now I tell you that because it's one possible resolution of what's going on here. There are places in Scripture where it may seem and appear like, man, maybe it contradicts itself, but understand these are different authors writing from different perspectives. And in nearly every situation you have in Scripture where there's something like this nature, there is an easily resolvable way of how this could all have worked out. And I don't think of it, it contradicts Scripture in the slightest, and there's nothing foundational in what it has. I just want to point that out and read it to you. But they're wrestling. They're wrestling what's going on. And Peter's saying, listen, I, I think God told us this day would come. I think they knew it was going to happen. Let's see how it finishes. So he says, therefore, verse 21, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, Lord Jesus went into and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become witness with us in his resurrection. And so they're trying to find someone else to take Jesus' position. So they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who is also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, you, Lord, know everyone's heart. Show which of these two you have chosen to take this place in the apostolic ministry. And the Judas left to go... Uh, that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Mattathias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. They cast lots. Many scholars will wrestle what it is. It was it a, either a dice or actually most think it's a coin. They, they literally flipped a coin. What a big decision. How could they just, which one will it be? I guess it's that one. 
Like, what would make them think that they could just do this? What would make them they could just make such a big decision right here and flip a coin? I mean, shouldn't they wait? Jesus just told them, wait for the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, James Vernon McGee, who's a commentator I, re- I go to often, says that he believes that, G- that Peter is acting outside the will of God because he didn't choose to wait. He's acting on his own behalf. But I don't believe that to be true, and you see in Scripture where it talks about other things. What would make them believe they can do this? Well, I go back to my main idea. It's this. It's I believe that they used wisdom and discernment to take initiative. Well, let me show you. Look again at Acts chapter 12, uh, 1, verse 12 through 14. The first thing I want to point out to you is I love what they do is when they sit down, what do they do? They start praying. They begin to seek out God. It says they continually, continually united in prayer. They came together for a common cause and said, listen, we need an answer here. We need something to happen. Let's all pray for this. Let's pray for a solution. Let's all pray together that God would give us the answer to this. And they begin praying, God, show us the way. God, show us what's going on. You see, I think when it comes to prayer, we sometimes get disillusioned what it's all about. You see, when we pray, it does one of two things. One, it gives it to God, whatever it is. Whatever we're trying to come to God, whether it's someone, something in our life, we're saying, God, we have the situation, we give it to you. We trust that whatever it is, you are going to be faithful and you're going to direct if there needs to be directing here. But not just that, it only gives it to God, but it also gives us to God. You understand, we miss that piece. It's saying, God, we're going to pray together for the solution, and we believe you are going to change the circumstances, or you're going to change me. And many of us look for the first and miss the latter, don't we? We spend so much time saying, God, change the situation. Change this whole thing to make it all right. Change everything. Fix this right here. When God says, sometimes I just need to change your heart, and maybe my perception needs to change. What would happen if we as a church came together on issues that we saw big or small, and we all pray together over the same thing. I believe God would change either the situation or he would change our perception on it. Can I tell you from myself and even from elders as we've talked together, we would say probably one of our failures is we have not done a good job at that. Man, how can we bring stuff to the church and say, listen, we need to be, we need to be praying for this, praying that God would bring a resolution to it or that God would change our hearts and our minds about it. And what's interesting to me is when we pray to God, when we pray to God, we come to God and give it to him, we give ourselves to him, sometimes we pray, and listen, God gives us an answer. Sometimes he does, doesn't he? You ever had a situation like that you prayed and God miraculously came through, or God miraculously came and gave you the answer you needed? But sometimes when we pray, sometimes when we cry out to God and we seek after him, say, God, I want to know your heart, God simply does this. He gives it back to us. That's frustrating, isn't it? You ever been in a situation like that? You cry out to God, hey, God, would you do something? And God's like, here, have it. You're like, whoa, whoa, bro. I tried to hand it off to you, and you pass the buck back to me. Sometimes God wants us to be a part of the solution. He wants us to take a piece of the ownership in the pie. Do you understand? I think of situations with my kids. Can I tell you something? With my kids in my household, I love for them to make decisions with me. But at the end of the day, my will is going to be done if I feel like it needs to happen, right? If it were up to my kids, we would eat Chuck E. Cheese every day for every meal. Every day. And on some days, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea. Every day. But there's times, listen, I tell them, like, listen, as your father, one, I can't afford that, nor do I want to go in that flu-infested place or whatever. Like, I'm not going to do it. When it's time, I step in and I tell my kids, we are not going to do this. 
This is what we're going to do. But there's times with my kids where we have Friday family fun day and we go do something and me and my wife will make a decision on what we think is best for our family. But there's sometimes we lay it before our kids and say, listen, where do you want to go? And can I tell you, my kids struggle with that. I don't know, what should we do? Give us some options. Listen, no, no, the, the, the table's yours. Whatever you want, we want to bless you. We want you to enjoy this. What do you want to do? I can't tell you how many times we've drove in circles for almost hours waiting for a decision to be made as my kids struggle with this. Sometimes I want them just to have, like, listen, Daddy wants to give you the best of whatever. I want you just pick, pick. Sometimes it's difficult decisions. I'm like, Addy, listen, it's, it's your decision. No, no, it's hard. Well, I don't know what I do with this friend. No, it's, it's your decision. I don't have an issue with it. See, we seek after God, and we understand how prayer truly works. God's going to change us. God's going to change it. And sometimes God's just going to give it back to us. But I love they seek after God. It's the first thing they do. That's one aspect of wisdom discernment is who do you do? You go to the wisest person you know, and it's God, and say, God, what, what do I do? How often do we honestly do that? With big stuff or little stuff? I've had my mother-in-law one time told me, I was talking to her, and she said, I lost my keys, and I prayed for God to show them to me. And I remember going, I think God has better stuff to do with his time than find your keys because you forgot where they are. But then as I think about it and read scripture, I'm realizing, you know what? God says bring even smallest things to me. As my kids come to me like, Daddy, I can't find my little toy whatever. I don't go, listen, Daddy's got better things to do than to find your little toy whatever. Sometimes I want to help her do that. It doesn't matter. And so we seek out God. But not only that, they seek out God, and they don't seem to get an answer. And so what do they do? They begin seeking Scripture. Look at verse 15 through 22. They start unpacking Scripture, trying to make sense of the situation. They talk about Judas and what's going on. How can we seek? Well, the Bible maybe will clearly tell us. Can I tell you something? God has given us his direct will in the Bible so we can understand exactly what he wants to do. And can I tell you something else? When it comes to prayer, when we pray to God, God will never contradict himself. He will never tell you that you need to do this, even though the Bible says this. He will never do that. He won't. And yet people get so caught up and out of shape for it, and they miss it. And so they go and they consult Scripture trying to find out what it is, and they talk about Judas and how they understand this all in the Old Testament. But I love verse 21. It says, he says, Therefore, from among the men who have accomplished uh, all with us, we need to find men from among us who have been a part of the whole time. You see, when it comes to seeking Scripture, we need to ask ourselves first and foremost is, what does God's Word say? Like, what does the Bible say? Because if it gets clearly written in Scripture, we don't need to wrestle with the answer to it. Here's an example for you. Uh, some of the people have wrestled before. Should I or should I not witness to my friends and family? Like, I just don't, I don't know if I should be the person to do that. I don't know if that's my calling. I don't know if that's my position. What's interesting to me in the Bible is you have 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, It pleases God our Savior that everyone would be saved and that everyone would know the whole truth. Do you know what makes God happy? Is that everyone would come to know this truth of the gospel. You know what I don't have to wrestle with? Whether or not I need to tell them the gospel. Because why? Because everyone implies everyone, right? But yet people say, well, I don't know if I should. The Bible makes it clear, you should. This is God's will. Why are you fighting with this? Why are you making something complicated over something so simple? And so we come and ask, say, what does God's word say? But sometimes God's word is not directly clear, isn't it? And so the next question we have to ask ourselves is this, is what would God say? 
in, in those areas that maybe are gray or not exactly clear, just kind of ambiguous altogether. It's not what does God say, but what would God say? In other words, what would God's character, what would God's patterns, what would God's principles point to in this given situation? You see, when I know God's heart, when I begin to tune in with God's heart, and I read God's scripture and I understand more about him, I don't have to question and guess because I know him. Best way I say is my own wife. I, we, we've been married for 14 years now, and we dated for five years before that. And so, you see, so it's been 19 years of bliss for her. You know what I'm saying? She's not in here to defend herself. Here's the thing. I know her super well. There's certain things I know. For example, one thing I know about my wife is she absolutely hates scary movies. Like, hates them. Like, detests them. And I remember in college, I wanted to go see this scary movie called White Noise. And so I told her, I said, let's go see this movie. I said, it's a romance movie. Oh, don't judge, okay? Listen, I was young and immature. I'm still young and immature, but I said, let's go see this movie. I said, it's about, about this guy who loves this girl, and, and all she hears is white noise. It was, I can't believe she bought it. But anyways, so I told her, and we went and sought this, watched this movie, and the moment it starts, you ever have one of those movies where just by the first few notes in the music, you know, it was like, and she looks at me, and I kid you not, it was like this. She's sitting right here. I'm sitting right here. She looks over. She goes, you lied. It's like, we've already paid. We're broke college kids. We've got to sit through the whole thing. Listen, I know my wife. Even some movies I know that are not, not characterized as horror movies, can I tell you something? I know she's not going to like it. I know it's an action movie, but I know my wife. That, like, she, she's not going to enjoy that. I don't have to guess. Well, this one's not categorized as a horror movie. I, I know that she's not going to like this. Why? Because I know my wife's heart. I've spent enough time with her. I've seen situations where I thought, oh, I, I, okay, wow, she doesn't like that. I know exactly how to handle that sort of stuff. Can I tell you something? When it comes to God, we, we sometimes have to search not just God through prayer, but search Scripture and discern what we do know to decide on what we don't know. Do you understand? So, sometimes with my wife, I, just, I, I know based on her character, patterns, and principles, this is not going to line up. When I try to convince her that, hey, maybe we should go and go in debt on this ridiculously large TV, I know my wife's heart. She is not for debt at all. That conversation is never going to go well. As much as I try to convince her, it's not going to happen. And with God, we know his heart. And so I hear, I want to show you a situation. Look at verse 21 through 22. They begin to pray. They said, therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time that Lord Jesus went with us and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken from us, from among these people, in other words, from the beginning all the way until the end we saw Jesus, we need to find someone who's been a part, who's been a witness to all these sort of things. They are never commanded to do this. Yet they know in Scripture how important having 12 disciples is, as it connects the Old Testament with the 12 tribes. They know this is important, so this spot needs to be filled. And where do they know? Why do they put this criteria? Because if you go over to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what did Jesus tell them? It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and listen, and you will be my witness. They understand two things Jesus said. Listen, you need to have the Holy Spirit, and you need to have a story. And so they deducted from those things that, listen, we need to find someone that has been with us who can actually tell a story. Even though this guy's great and he's been with us for the past five minutes, he's not going to be able to talk about the story about what Jesus did. And so it's important we deduce that this is what we need. Do you see what they did? 
Let me give you an example situation from student ministry days that I dealt with. I can't tell you how many kids and students I dealt with that would come up to me and say, Eric, listen, I found the girl of my dreams. Like, she's amazing. I really like her a lot, but she's, she does, she's not a Christian. She doesn't go to church. And I say, I, you're, you're, you shouldn't be dating her. No, no, you don't understand, Eric. Like, I believe God's told me that, that I should date her so that I can lead her to the Lord. Like, isn't it God's will that no one would be lost, that everyone would be saved? Isn't that God's will? Can I tell you, Scripture doesn't necessarily say directly in the New Testament that you should not marry or date someone that's not a believer. It does say that you should not be unequally yoked with other people. People who do not know the Lord, you should not be unequally yoked. not talk about marriage in that. I also know from the Old Testament, I read all through, God made a point time and time again. Listen, do not marry other wives, foreign women, foreign people who worship different gods because they're going to lead your heart astray. Can I tell you, I can tell you with confidence, this is not in God's will, even though God does not clearly say it in the New Testament. I, I don't have to wrestle with that. There, there's no doubt about it. Why? Because I know God's character. I know God's will. When it comes to you, God does not want you to have any situation that's going to pull your heart away from him, as great as you think you are. And can I tell you, every time I saw students fall through on those things, it never worked out. Never worked out. Did And so here's the thing. We, we need to seek out God. We seek out Scripture. The problem is, most of the time with us, we don't know God well enough that we don't know what he would say. Right? Well, I don't know what God would say. It's like a book I'm reading called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turk. He says this. He said... In his book, he said, we sometimes ask our students, what's the greatest problem in America today? Is it ignorance or is it apathy? He said one time he asked that and his student answered, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> if you don't know what apathy is or that, we'll talk later. But isn't that true with us? Sometimes like, well, what would God say? Well, I don't know what God says. And to be honest, I don't really care what God would say. And sometimes we think that sometimes we can skate by simply on our good intentions. God understands that my intentions are good, and that's going to get me by. And it's going to allow me to be ignorant and apathetic about the situation because my heart is good. Can I tell you something? Try that with a speeding ticket. Try that driving down the road and get pulled over and like, listen, officer, I promise you, I did not intentionally want to break the law. I just didn't know what it was, and I really honestly didn't care. Is he going to look at you and go, well, that's all good. Your intentions are good. And he's like, well, that's great. Here's a court date. Go get this taken care of. It won't happen. It's not an athletic pass by us being lazy. It's not pardonable. And so we have a responsibility to wrestle with Scripture, to dig into Scripture and say, what does God's character show? And when I talk to God, what does he reveal to me? Now, here's the greatest thing. They seek out God. They use wisdom. They use discernment. But here's the beauty of what's going on. You don't get a clear answer from any one of those two things. And so what do they do in verse 25 to 26? They flip a coin. Since they proposed two guys, Joseph, these guys who meet their criteria, who've been with us the whole time. These two guys who are great guys, they're about even. Uh, we could go either way. And they prayed to God and they said, Lord, you know our hearts. You know that we've done everything we can here. And so we, we just trust you with it to take the place of this uh, position. And then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Mattathias and he added to 11. They, they literally, should it be Mattathias or this other guy? And they go, yep, it's you. What, what would make them think they can do that? What would give them the option? What would make them think that they can just make a decision of that magnitude with it? Can I tell you something? There's a difference between precepts and preferences. Precepts are commands that God says. When God clearly states, you do this or don't do this, can I tell you something? You do this or you don't do that. 
But in those situations where there's preferences, where there's gray areas, we trust God's will. We know God's will enough. We know his word. We know his heart that we can have confidence that we place ourselves in position that we can act. Let me give you an example in Scripture of a, of, a, of a preference. You have situation in Genesis chapter 12 about Abraham and Lot. God tells Abraham, says, listen, I want you to go to a place I will show you, and I will bless you and make you a father of many nations. And then you have in Genesis, or Genesis chapter 13, not soon after, they get in a situation where Abraham and Lot's family are fighting. And what does Abraham do? Hey, hey Lot, pick whichever side you want. I'll go the other way. He understands God's heart, and he just says, listen, I, I trust God's going to bless me either way I go here. Can I tell you another situation? David and Goliath. David comes. He's a young man. He knows this man is making fun of Israel's army. He knows that God wants his people to survive and to be mighty and powerful, and no one's stepping up. And what does he do? He says, dude, I'll take on Goliath. This little eight-year-old kid comes out there, right, with a slingshot and five stones. What gives him the audacity to do it? Because he perceives God's will, and he knows, like, listen, this is not, this is what God would want me to do. And he takes a leap of faith. You see, when it comes to God's will, we sometimes look at it wrong. We look at it like this picture here. We think God's will is like a slack line where I have to walk, and if I take one wrong step, man, everything's going to fall to pieces, and all of God's will is going to fall apart. Man, God, God everything's going to mess up. My, my favorite I hear all the time is when people start day talking about Mary. Like, how do I know this is the one? Because if I don't marry this one, what's going to happen? Can I tell you, if that were the case, if there were just one, can I tell you, something has messed, someone has messed it up for all of us somewhere, right? The law of averages said that it'd fall off. See, the reality, when we understand God's will, we should look at it more as this, like a basketball court, where there are clear-cut boundaries, where God clearly says, you don't do this, you don't do that. And so when I see this, I don't have to wrestle. When I step right here, this is out of bounds. God has clearly directed that. And when I know God's out of bounds lines, and I know the arena I'm called to play in, when I come on the court, the next thing I do is what? I find where I can be the most effective for God's kingdom, the most strategic place. For me in high school, as a big guy, it was underneath the basket. It was not shooting threes. That was not my skill level. And so I placed myself in the most fitting position where I could be most effective for God's kingdom. Can I tell you something? If I started shooting threes outside, would God still bless it? God, could God use that? Could I still make strides for the kingdom? I could, but I wouldn't be near as effective in my position. Do you understand? Sometimes God lays it back at us and allows us to make the decision. Sometimes when we know the will of God, we know it's clear, and God has not stirred our heart and directed us exactly where we need to be, God's saying, listen, choose. Choose. You know how I know Emily was the one? Because I, I know the boundaries. I made sure that she was the right fit. And after that, I, I chose her. That She's the one because I chose. God gave me the freedom to do that. Can I give you a real-life example I have? For me, whenever I interviewed to come here, I was interviewing at another church called Waterloo Road. I went through a whole process. I'm going to tell you, I felt like that's where I was going to go. Can I be honest with you? North Point is not where I felt like I was going to go. And can I tell you something? As I wrestled all the things right out, I was like, listen, these are both great situations. I feel like I could be effective in either one. And as I began to pursue, God shut the door on water through, and God opened the door here. And I faithfully walked through. Can I tell you something? If both situations had been there and both were my shoes, if I were to pick one, can I tell you something? I believe God would have blessed either one of those. Because God's not limited by my ability on that. And so I have things to choose. When all things are equal, when all things are equal and you've weighed everything, sometimes, listen, it's as simple as this. Which one should I do? And that's rough for us. Some of you guys probably feel uncomfortable, like it can't be a flip of a coin. When it's all equal and all situations are the same, I have two men who are perfectly qualified, perfectly fit every criteria we have. God's going to bless either way. He hasn't directed us directly. 
He hasn't shown clear signs of scriptures. I've discerned his will. I've wrestled. I've placed ourselves in the best possible position. And either way I go, God's going to bless it. You see, for sometimes for us, listen, we need to use wisdom and discernment to take initiative. God's called us to be guided by the Holy Spirit. But there's a fine line between waiting for God and just waiting to stall. Isn't there? We, we don't want to pull the trigger. We don't want to make a decision because we're so scared of what would happen. And God's sitting here saying, just choose. Would you just choose? As a church, there's going to be times where, listen, we don't feel led whether it be about a building or ministries or budget or other stuff, we say, I don't know if they feel led, but when we wrestle and we weigh God's word, we come and say, listen, God's allowing us to choose in this. For us as individuals, sometimes we're not going to feel led to serve, to give, to support, to whatever it is. Can I tell you something? Sometimes it's not about leading. It's just, listen, I know this needs to be done, and I just need to choose, and God's going to bless whatever outcome there. We can't sit and stall. We sometimes need to take initiative. And if you're wrestling, if you are unbothered or unhinged on what I'm saying, so I'm not sure I agree with it, let me share a closing parable with you. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through 30, is called, known as the parable of the talents. And it's from the message version. I just want you to listen. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like this. He said it's like a man going off on an extended trip. He said he called all his servants together and he delegated responsibilities out. To, to one he gave $5,000, to another 2000 and to a third one, just a thousand, depending on their abilities. And then he left. Right off, the first servant went and worked and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same. But the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him that he had doubled his investment. His master commanded him and said, Good work. You did your job. Well, from now on, be my partner. The servant that was given 2000 same thing, he showed him, and he doubled the master's investment. His master commended him and said, good word, good work, you did your job well, from now on, be my partner. But the servant given the 1000 said, master, I know you are high, have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowance for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent, just as you left it. The master was furious. He said, that's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew that I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. He said, take the thousand and give it to the one who risks the most. And get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. Can I, can I just tell you something? Matthew 25, 14 through 30 tells us that God would rather us act and try than to not try at all. Now, doesn't it give you ignorance and opportunity to say, I'm not going to pray about it. I'm not going to seek the Lord. I'm not going to seek his word. You need to do your due diligence. But at the end of the day, sometimes, like, God, I'm just going to trust you with this. You know our hearts. You know my, what I'm trying to do. I just need you to guide me. And we just, we make a decision. The church stalls out sometimes when we don't. And so for a church to accomplish, a small church to call, accomplish a big mission, we have to use discernment and wisdom to take initiative. With your families, can I tell you something? You're going to have to use discernment and wisdom to take initiative. In your life, you're going to have to do this. And so it's a challenge, it's a plea for our church to do this. And so I want to ask where you're at, if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to take a second, just allow God to stir in our hearts. And for some of you, I know this is hard to hear, and maybe you disagree with me, and I'd encourage you to come talk to me about it. 
But I don't want to be a church that stalls ourselves out because we're waiting for something God has given us freedom to make a decision on. And so wherever you're at, if God's leading you to do something, you've been timid about pulling the trigger, listen, can I just ask you where you're at right now? Just take a sec, just begin to commit to God that, God, I'm going to seek after you in prayer. I'm going to involve all parties that need to be involved in this. We're going to pray together over this situation. I'm going to search your word and see if there's anything I'm missing about your character, your, your principles, your, your patterns that maybe might point me in a direction. But after I've done my due diligence, Lord, I'm, I'm going to take a leap of faith and trust that you can bless this situation. All of you, I guarantee you, have something in your life that you know what I'm talking about that you need to do. Maybe it's here at the church. Maybe it's in your work life. Maybe it's in your families. But I challenge you to take it. For some of you, your leap right now is just salvation. You've never asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Can I tell you something? God wants you to be saved. There's no question about it. If you are in this room, God wants you to be a part of his kingdom. God wants you to be one of his children. But it has to be a decision you make and you make alone. I can promise you, you don't have to wrestle with that. That's clear. And so if God's stirring your heart on that, one of our elders will be in the back. I encourage you to go find one of them and just ask them, hey, what do I need to do? And so where you're at, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to just kind of transition our service to a time of worship. We're going to have our offering as well. And so if, if you were taking the offering, would you just make way in the position that you need to be in? As we take offering, I'm just going to ask you to be faithful to give what you know you need to give. Maybe you aren't going to feel led to this, but you know it's God's will that we uh, faithfully give to the church. So I ask you to be faithful to that. If you forgot your wallet today or whatever, or you are a digital person, you can go onto our website and you can give that way. You can even set up recurring giving. I encourage you to do that, but don't let this day go by. And so would you just pray with me? Father God, I thank you for being faithful. I thank you for giving us opportunities just to lead. You called us to be partnership in this kingdom, and so God, help us to take our role and run with it. God, if there's something in our hearts stirring, that God, I pray that we'd be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. I pray we'd be sensitive to your word and be faithful to that. But God, let us not be timid. God, let us be faithful. God, I praise you for being holy and faithful in all things. I pray for our church that we would come together and start making strides for the kingdom. Not look at our visible things, but begin looking at the depth of stuff that we're, we're not even aware of. You want to do great things in and through us. I praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.